Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's up, everybody? Isaac here, Civil Engineering Academy. Excited to be with you on another podcast episode. If you haven't liked or subscribed to us yet, please do so. We love sharing them. Hopefully you like sharing them with your friends. But today I bring a very special guest on. John Pitts, who is the Director of Civil and Structural Engineering with the U.S. Department of State, which is the federal government. Particularly, he works for the Bureau of Overseas Buildings Operations. If you have no idea what they do, these are the guys that are actually going around the country, not the country, the world, and building buildings, U.S. embassies, anything that needs to be built by the United States government, get done by John and his group, the U.S. Department of State. So we have a fascinating interview, a a lot of good questions that are asked about how they do this, what standards they have to follow, what issues that they encounter as they do this stuff around the world, around the globe, and really what it's all about, and that is diplomacy, uh, which is a really, really neat thing. So this is really the front lines of diplomacy. Talk about John's own background into civil engineering, how he found himself into the federal government, his design work that he's had and experience that he's done doing that in the private sector. And really, if going to the federal government and going that government sector is a route for you. Anyway, all that detailed in this episode, I think you're really going to enjoy it. Definitely reach out to John if you have questions after this, and we'll make sure to leave links to reach out to him. Anyway, we're thankful that you're here. Excited to share this with you. It's coming up right after this. Hey guys, if you haven't already, I want to let you know about our awesome newsletter. If you haven't signed up for the Civil Engineering Academy newsletter, seriously, what's wrong with you? I'm just kidding. Go check it out, though. You'll get all the latest episodes that we produce, blog articles, exams, discounts, course material. All this fun stuff is through our newsletter. So if you haven't signed up, go check it out. That's civilengineeringacademy.com slash newsletter. You'll be taken. Go sign up and uh, you'll start getting our fun newsletters that we send out usually once a week. So go check it out, civilengineeringacademy.com slash newsletter and go sign up. Hey, have you struggled to find time to actually read a book? I know I have. Life is busy, four kids, all of that jazz. It makes it really hard to actually sit down and read a book. So you know what I turned to? I turned to Audible and we have an affiliate with them. If you go to civilengineeringacademy.com slash Audible, that's A-U-D-I-B-L-E. You can jump on and find your favorite titles to go anywhere with you. Use that link. You'll get 30 days for free. You'll also get a couple of credits. And if you're already a Prime member, you'll get two credits, which is good for some premium selection titles that you can actually keep. But go check them out. I really have enjoyed Atomic Habits by James Clear, which gives you an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. They've got fun ones like Dune that are on there and tons of others. So if you're in the hunt to find time in your day to listen to books, definitely give them a shot. Go to civilengineeringacademy.com slash audible. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E. And go get a free 30-day trial of Audible. Go check them out. All right, we are going, John. Thanks for uh, joining me on the Civil Engineering Academy podcast. I appreciate you jumping on with me today. No, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. 
Yeah, it's going to be exciting. So I guess I always like to start these by finding out how you found yourself into this world of civil engineering. And maybe that's going back a few years. But, you know, most people that find themselves in this arena, maybe it wasn't their first choice or maybe they had an example or something. So I guess how did you find yourself into this world of civil engineering and maybe give us a little detail of how you found yourself working where you are right now? I early on was one of those kind of good at math, kind of absorbed all of the physics stuff. I mean, that was fun for me. You know, my father was a safety engineer. My grandfather was a civil engineer. You know, so I kind of had a feel like, well, oh, if you like that, you become an engineer. That's what you do. That's what you do. And, you know, at the time I went to high school in Louisiana, I went to college at Texas A&M University, where my father had gone to school and just found that, you know, amongst all the disciplines, I mean, the first couple of years is kind of intro anyway. So I thought I had some friends who were closely involved in civil engineering. I really didn't have any kind of preference one way or another. It was a fit because my grandfather had been a civil engineer and I thought, okay, well, that'll work. I found it to be very rewarding. Certainly all of the, you know, various kind of construction materials stuff. The surveying was fun at the time. I don't know. Certainly, I hope people are still doing that, getting out in the field to try to figure things out. But, uh, you know, just really enjoyed that part of learning. For me, the education was a lot more about, uh, and at Texas A&M, this is, gosh, I graduated in 1984, you know, was more about the principle and not as much about the practice. I kind of see, I think, that that trend is changing, I think, for the better, you know, because I can honestly say, you know, I came out fluid dynamics, I knew, but I I didn't know what a manhole was. You had seen it on paper, you walked over them your entire life, but no instructor had taken us out, opened up a manhole and said, look down in there and what's going on? You know, YouTube around us now, it seems like people can definitely see things a little better, it feels like, maybe pull it out of a book. But hopefully people are getting out in the field, too, and checking things out. That's always a very important part of, I think, being a civil engineer in general, getting out and seeing how things are built. No, and you can't drive around anywhere and not see, you know, evidence of our work or things that you didn't know about or, you know, what kind of curb is that? That spillway looks a little over-designed to me It's fun. It makes it kind of relevant and tangible. How did you find yourself into the government sector in civil engineering? I took a commission uh, out of college. So I went to the Navy, actually, and did some time surface warfare, uh, driving ships around. They have a civil engineer corps, though, and I transferred to the civil engineering corps. After a little bit of training, they sent me to... uh, Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, we did mostly oversight of construction and management of contracts, but, you know, they still are a vibrant part of the civil engineering community and do both the construction battalions, the CBs, if you will, and then facilities managers and construction managers. So that kind of gave me a flavor for what it was like to be engaged construction manager's role, but I still didn't have any design experience. And I felt like, you know, I got all this principles. Let's go put them into practice. Let's figure out what this design thing is. So I left the Navy. I, I took a job at a firm called Hewitt Sollers in Dallas. And at the time, this was 91, you know, they might have had 40 engineers. 
I think they've got 400 now just as a result of just acquisitions and growth. But at the time, it was very much just the bread and butter of land development. Uh, uh, They had a big project for the Dallas Area Rapid Transit at the time, which was fun. And yeah, I got to do that. I wanted to do, you know, that design things, design things, draft them. At the time, we were still kind of coming out of the sort of background of having drafters and engineers to, at the time, graduate engineers were actually starting as drafters and then becoming just designers. But yeah, I did get to be a part of the world at that time, which was coming into its own in CAD. Yeah, we still were using ink on Mylar in a lot of cases in the early 90s. But, you know, we cranked out a lot of things, uh, you know, garden style apartments, roadway widenings and improvements. You know, a lot of really what I felt was, okay, well, I checked that box of I can design it. So I can understand, you know, what designers are going through or understand what design firms, what they have to go through. I guess after you got this design experience, was there a draw to get back into, I guess, the government sector to help what their mission was, what was going on there? Right. I relocated to the Washington area of 97 with that intent and started originally just with the municipal government doing a program for them. Again, they do, it was for the Park Authority in Fairfax County. We did $100 million worth of work in three years, I think it was, which is sounded like a lot then, but not quite so much now, but it was in very small projects uh, throughout the county. And that was where I had a cadre of project managers. We were implementing, design and constructing various improvements all around the county. And that was fun. And I thought, yeah, this parlays well into the federal sector because the federal government has the bigger programs, the programs that are well-funded, you know, the programs that pique a lot of interest. So I started with a program for the Coast Guard, actually. They were doing a coastal 911 system, and they didn't have a civil engineer to do any kind of site assessments or design or layout of just basic infrastructure. So I joined them, did a lot of the initial planning for the system, which was all of the continental United States on the coastline. So we're identifying tower locations, making sure that all of the power and other infrastructure were available. It was a good sort of site selection and evaluation experience. And, you know, once we got that sort of part of the problem solved, started looking for the next big program. And at the time, the base realignment closure, uh, again, it happens periodically. And in 2005, the BRAC program said, hey, all these federal workers that are up here in the Washington area that are exposed to you know, various threats, we need to get them out of that situation and put them on purpose-built facilities. Mm-hmm. So I was able to work on a project for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers as a civil servant at Fort Belvoir here in Virginia and did a building for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency that we implemented by 2011. So from 2007 to 11, in four years, we did building that's uh, still a rock star looking building and over a million square feet with infrastructure included. Wow. Four years. So it was a lot of fun, but it was, you know, really wet my appetite for the big programs that the federal government did. So now you're a director of civil and structural engineering, I believe, right? For yes. the Department of State. 
So tell me what the U.S. Department of State works on as part of the Bureau of Overseas Building Operations. What do you do? Right. So right, all those diplomats that we have overseas in our 200 countries that we have diplomatic relations with, they need a facility to perform that mission of diplomacy. You know, and typically we very much like to be very close to where the people of that country are and where business is being performed. And the mission varies quite a bit from place to place because whenever you think of an embassy, it's more than just the State Department. It's every other executive branch of the government who has an interest. So if you think uh, drug interdiction or things like that, where there are places where there are drugs, we're trying to get that country to police themselves. You know, Homeland Security goes there and they fall under the chief of mission, that is the ambassador, and they are housed within the embassy. So in those kind of 200 countries, we have about 290 facilities from large to small. They are sometimes big compounds where we have to even put our, all the diplomats that work there have to live on the compound in some of the more dangerous parts of the world. And it varies to admission because sometimes there is an embassy in a country like Egypt that has an embassy in Cairo, but they have a consulate in Alexandria because we have an interest in things that go on at the port. And that's where the port is. So that's the idea of how our mission sort of morphs to meet what our government interests are. So I had finished a program for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in the Middle East and was brought here kind of to help with some of the projects that were ongoing in our portfolio in Near East Asia. So in Egypt and Lebanon primarily. That's so. fascinating. So it sounds like we're just constantly building new structures all over the world. Well, as the mission changes, our interests change, and as the threat changes. So our mission is to make sure that the business of diplomacy can be conducted in a safe, secure environment to include both where the offices for our diplomats are and where their residences are. So I think total assets, there's something like 25,000 facilities in that whole portfolio of 290 missions, right? But it's made up of a lot of buildings and a lot of residences. About 16,000 of those are just residences, particularly when for my group, which we are have structural engineers that have background in seismic design. And while there might be hot spots in the U.S. on the West Coast and everybody's somewhat familiar with that, it, you know, there are a lot hotter, more seismic regions in the world uh, that we have to make sure that we at least get whatever's best available in that region to be resilient to things like earthquakes. So it is a well-funded and ongoing program that adjusts to the sort of physical security threats as well. So post the Dar Salaam bombings in 99, there was a, a law passed that um, secure embassy construction that had us replace a lot of exposed embassies. So we've been working through that list since 2000. Oh, wow. I was going to ask, do you decommission buildings ever or are we just improving them to meet new standards? For now, the, the good news about the mission of state, and it's one of the longest standing parts of our government, is that, you know, we're portfolio managers. So we cradle the grave. We 
We do our own acquisition of land. Of course, the sort of planning, design, construction, operate, maintain, but also dispose of and then take the proceeds of that and put them back into the program. There's no other federal agency that has that authority. And it makes sense because, you know, when we're trying to figure out whether or not it makes sense to stay where we are or move and bought in a build new, I mean, that's part of the consideration is that can we take our embassy in Paris and sell it and, you know, take the proceeds of that and use it to develop something else that we need. In that regard, you know, from the certainly being an owner is great because you're kind of managing the whole of the program and you get to see all little parts of it at work and be involved in all the parts of it and not just one little piece. That's kind of cool. And then, yeah, just being able to think of it as though, hey, our entire portfolio is something we're in charge of, inclusive of all these facilities, houses, and how are we going to pull it off based on our budget, based on our other constraints. So it makes for a lot of fun. Do other countries, is the process, I guess, of building a building, I'm assuming it's going to change a little bit depending on the country that you're in. I'm very used to how things are done maybe in the United States. Maybe we're looking at a piece of property. You have to do an environmental assessment on that piece of property and things of that nature. I mean, is that different depending on the country that we're going into, that we follow a different procedure? Or is there something that says, you know, you guys have your own standards. You know, this is the process that we follow in order to find a property and, and build on it. Certainly, we honor whatever standards there are in the country and at whatever zoning laws that there are. You know, we're very much about the whole of our existence is about diplomacy. It's not just, you know, some meeting later on after we build this embassy. No, it starts with us going to a country, getting them to agree to certain things. We still have to negotiate what sort of amenities we're going to offer, how we're going to mitigate the impact of our construction activity, that sort of thing. But we have our own standards that, you know, we're the authority having jurisdiction for all those facilities. So we write the design standards. They're based on uh, the International Building Code. We have an International Building Code supplement that we update every year so that it satisfies our unique needs and constraints. But in general, we find that that most countries either use the International Building Code and codes and standards don't tend to be the issue. What typically happens is construction practices vary very significantly from one place to the next. So we have to make sure we account for that. And, you know, oftentimes... Quality is good. Yeah, quality and how to control it certainly are a challenge. So, and then, you know, things like Civil engineers, as an example, I mean, we most or all of the civil engineers that are on various teams are U.S. based. They have to learn, well, I know there's a standard you use for a thing like a curb, as an example, that you've used on the last project, and it's this mountable or it's just this six inch curb or whatever, but we're using metric, so it's six inches anymore. We don't accept the soft conversions. Plus, I mean, it may be something that the local contracting community has never built before. Yeah. So they might use segmented curb. And it's a wow. precast curb section. It's common throughout parts of the world that, hey, if they use segmented curb, there's no reason why we shouldn't. That's fascinating. You know, you always see these buildings, maybe in the movies and things of that nature. But 
I don't think anybody really thinks about the level of effort that went into designing these nice structures for diplomacy and for us to be there. And I think it's a wonderful thing to have. It's fascinating how it's it all that gets executed. If you made anyone from a foreign country, just the impression they probably got about the United States was when they went to our embassy to try to get a visa to come to the United States. Yeah. Well, how did it look? Was it, you know, where, how are they treated? That sort of thing. So we did try to make, use the actual building as diplomacy, the architecture as diplomacy, the engineering as diplomacy. So, you know, there are parts of the world that don't treat sewage. So we don't go to those countries and not treat our own sewage. We have our own package treatment plants. So in that way, at least a, a demonstration of here's how it could be done. And we don't often get the opportunity to do specific projects with host nations. But what we do is, you know, there's a lot of other activities surrounding a project that are subcontractors and others that are involved in our projects. So they get to see those local engineering community and construction community gets to see, and you know, here's what and how the United States designs and constructs. So I believe they take away a lot of good value from seeing that. You know, we do our, our fair share of learning from them too, because there's often better ways to execute construction that we may not be aware of until we, we go to those countries. Well, has there been one or two projects that have been a favorite for you that you've worked on? I really did enjoy all of the design work that I did at Hewitt Zollers that were, it doesn't seem too brilliant per se, but I mean, we were doing garden style apartments every month. We would crank out a new design of 200 to 500 unit garden style apartments for about a year. And we got really good at it. So that was a good feeling to kind of, wow, we can really get good at this and turn out a good product at the same time. I really enjoyed that. I definitely enjoyed, I mentioned NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency building. It was a very well-informed customer that we, the Army Corps of Engineers was implementing this building with. We used a very innovative, at the time, execution strategy. It was uh, called Integrated Design Bid Build. It's now called construction manager as constructor, where the government retains the design, goes to 100%, but bids the project early. So at concept or something, gets mm -hmm. early contractor involvement. So a lot of the Clark Balfour Beatty was the joint venture did the building. I learned a lot just from those engineers that had great field experience and could inform our designs during design. Things like you'll never be able to lay that pipe at that slope. Oh, really? Why not? You know, so, and what does that look like? How should I change it? That was a lot of fun. I, that's where I got most of my field experience, which I would encourage anybody, if you're a designer or doing anything, you've got to get out in the field and see how things are done. Uh, it really informs good decisions as you go along in your career. Also, I mean, and we're talking about what you do and some of these favorite projects, but I guess in my mind, what are some of the benefits that you see working in a government sector as a civil engineer? You know, if, if a young engineer is trying to look right. where they want to head, what's the benefits that, that you see? I mean, working for the U.S. Department of State sounds like it's got some fascinating projects, but just curious your opinion. Well, right. If the projects really attract you, I mean, there's probably no better place than 
place like this that has some very complex projects. Beirut is one of my other favorites. It's uh, kind of an interesting program where all of the residents are on this site that's roughly 15 acres. And, you know, there's about 30 meters of fall from one side to the other. It's very much on this hillside. So it's very challenging in that regard. It's very interesting from the standpoint of where it is. Lebanon's a fascinating country with very experienced engineers in their own right. So that sort of exposure to projects like that really kind of enlightens what you, the next thing you would do. And you can get that in the United States. I'm not saying just overseas work is all that, but this sort of added complexity of having to plan really well, because if plan can't get implemented just right, it's not as easy to recover in a Mm -hmm. foreign country. You can't, you know, things take a long time to fabricate and ship. Of course, for us, we have secure construction. That means we're inspecting things here in the United States and monitoring them as they go overseas. So if it gets there and it's not right and it has to go back, you really kind of are stuck. So in that regard, it, it kind of ups, I guess, the intensity of making sure that things are planned really well. And that goes for us. It goes for our contractors, too. I like the Department of State. So our program, just for those reasons, it's overseas, it's complex, it's sort of, there's plenty of work both big and small. There's a lot of different things to learn about, not just about codes and standards as they vary across the world, really, but, you know, how do you solve extremes like of weather where like Ulaanbaatar, I think uh, the temperature doesn't really get above 40 degrees below zero. Oh, (laughs) so, you know, for a mechanical engineer, that's an amazing challenge. For civil engineers, some of our flooding challenges where there is no local infrastructure to convey, you know, like that would typically convey design storm or there is no floodplain mapped. So how are you, what do you do in those cases? Or if you're in a coastal environment, what are you going to do in a case where nobody's even trying to predict what sea level rise might be? One of our current challenges we're working on just to get better at predicting the effects of natural hazards. So when I was in college, we learned the rational method and we said, here's an intensity of a storm, the duration, the frequency, and it was just an equation. And you just went from place to place and opened the book. And that's what it said based on history. You equal CIA. Right. But where we work, I mean, there is no book. There is no, you know, rainfall data. In those cases, what are you going to do when it comes time to say, uh, where are we going to set the finished floor for this building? It's a challenge for us to get ahead of projects with that kind of information. So when we try to do it in the project, there's not enough time to do a flood study and to evaluate alternatives and to decide what the uh, design flood elevation would be. So we've stood up a climate security and resilience program that's taken a lot of the activities like that out of projects, both for the natural hazards of floodings, both riverine, coastal flooding as well. And similarly looked at other hazards you don't see a lot as a designer in the United States, like tsunamis. We build in places that are exposed to tsunami. What are you going to do about it? So that's been a lot of fun. And I think that for me, it really sends a message to our industry to that you really can't continue to use 
all of those tools that you use based on history. So you have to reinvent them in a way and be able to project a little bit further, particularly for those hazards that are exacerbated by climate change. Wow, that's fascinating. So it sounds like, uh, you know, there's a lot of criteria set up on what, you know, how, what we're going to design and what we're going to design to and making sure we're kind of on, on the same page with that, even if we don't have good data behind it, make good engineering judgment on what we're going to design for. I guess a follow-up question to that is if we're designing something in another country and, and this maybe ties into your PE license, how does that work? If you're a licensed, registered Pete, right. professional engineer in the United States, you're designing something overseas, does that translate? Well, I say that. And then for our projects, you know, we'll accept whatever that local equivalent is if it's designed by a local engineer. And we have several smaller projects that are. And typically our larger projects are all do require a licensed professional engineer in the United States. But again, in many cases, take geotechnical as an example, whenever you're doing deep foundations in a place like Bangkok that has a clay layer that might be 20 meters thick, there's no place in the United States like that. There's no licensed professional engineer in the United States who has experience with that. Right. So we open the bandwidth a little bit and allow that, hey, a local engineer might be better in this situation. You know, whereas some situations, particularly when it comes to supportive excavation, like where local engineering may not be completely familiar with standards for safety, but right. we typically defer to a U.S. engineer because they're very familiar with how supportive excavation restrictions. Well, I've been to India. I've been to Kenya. I've seen how they build things. And sometimes safety is not as strict as the U.S. is. But no, it's one of the other things that I think, not just the State Department, but any U.S. contractor or U.S. entity doing work overseas works very hard to make sure that the safety standards that we have in the United States are at least are enforced. And we've been very lucky and fortunate that that message kind of comes across and people get it. We can actually expect to be go to our job site and be reasonably safe. That's fascinating. Have you had the challenge of working with, uh, I'm assuming you, you work with a lot of different personalities. Have there been times where it's been challenging to, I guess, work in these other countries or even here in the U.S. and maybe some tips regarding how to deal with difficult personalities? Yeah. I mean, I think that the, just be prepared because it's going to happen. Uh, I love projects and programs and you can really get a feel for who is in the same boat that loves this project and is, you know, going to do what it takes to pull it off. And you'll run across people in your business that, you know, don't get it. So they're not on board and they're, you know, maybe not pulling in the same direction as hard as everybody. So, you know, you just have to be continuously positive about it. There's absolutely nothing personal about work ever. And yeah, I think your, your attitude and the attitude of the project's team is going to overcome any of that kind of adversity. So just take faith in the fact that you love what you're doing. Appreciate that. This has been a fascinating interview for me. I'm just kind of sit back and want to listen to the stories and all the projects that you're working on. I think it's just a fascinating thing that you have going on. So I appreciate you jumping on. I want to spread the word about the U.S. Department oh, yeah. with all that you have going on. Is there a good way for people to connect with you, John, if they had any further questions about anything that you would do or want to get involved? 
I think uh, you can certainly share my contact information. I'm on LinkedIn. That's a good place to reach me. The program itself, if you're interested in figuring out what's going on, the Overseas Art Bureau has its own website. We also kind of advertise what contracts we have available, and it's good. And I provide those to anybody interested because it's good to see, well, who are those lead worldwide design firms? And then who are the sub-consultants that are working with them, particularly civil engineers and other structural geotechnical and blast engineers, if that's something that grabs you yeah. too. Because that's probably the place to get your foot in the door is just to join one of the firms that's working on our program, get to know our program if you like it, perhaps come and work with us directly. I mean, there's there are often opportunities as I said, I think they are for that that a very experienced designer, and I'm speaking just for design and engineering that I'm in now, but that very experienced designer who wants to come and take that wealth of experience and put it to good use for our program. But similarly, we have construction managers, facilities managers, even real estate professionals on our team here that if that's something that you're working on and interested in, that is similarly available. So I can be your place to start, put you in touch with others as needed. That's fascinating. And uh, I imagine some of those spots, you know, you're going to where these are being built in different countries and putting a lot of time out there. So you no, know, that's a possibility. The, the one thing that the State Department has that other federal agencies don't is the Foreign Service. So there's cadre of about 120 or so at this point foreign service construction engineers uh, that spend their majority of their careers overseas implementing our projects. So in each project, there'll be at least a project director and a construction manager. And then the balance of the quality assurance staff are usually hired local engineers. So it's a really good choice, in my opinion, for somebody who wants to travel and doesn't you know, my being overseas for a considerable part of your career because you get involved in some amazing projects and you get to stay at these projects for at least a couple of years for each of them before you move on. For us in design and engineering, we just do light touches here and there and then help out in the field as construction occurs. So typically a lot of our travel is involved in site selection and evaluation of alternatives, that sort of thing, and then resolving issues as they occur. So, so yeah, a lot of out for a week or a week and a half and then back, you know, so it's opportunities to see some interesting places in the world. That's fascinating. Well, thanks for doing this podcast interview with us, John. I do appreciate you jumping on. We'll make sure we'll leave some good notes, show notes, and links to those listening so you can connect with John and uh, definitely check out the U.S. Department of State, the Bureau of Overseas Building Operations, see what they have available and out there. And um, sounds like an awesome opportunity for people. So anyway, thanks for doing this. And uh, I guess we'll see you next time. Absolutely. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Civil Engineering Academy podcast. Thanks for joining me today. If you want, please leave a review or a comment or a like. They definitely go a long way and share it with a friend because why not? It helps. 
Hey, if you're interested in becoming a guest, feel free to shoot me an email, Isaac at civilengineeringacademy.com. And if you know anyone or yourself personally, definitely check out our website, civilengineeringacademy.com, where we can help you on your journey to become a professional engineer, whether that's to help you pass your FE or your PE, or just get great career advice. And if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of this podcast and have an amazing outreach to other civil engineers, also shoot me an email and we'll be there to help you. Anyway, thanks for joining me today and we'll see you in the next one. Bye.